five seconds to submergence. Submergence deep into the absurd. Welcome. Today, we're doing The Stranger by Albert Camus. The Stranger is a very important book to me. I read it in high school for the first time, and my English teacher, Mr. Johnson, who's been on this podcast, was the one who assigned it to us. So it, it's a really important book for me, mainly because it brought me on my philosophical journey. Essentially, that whole English class is how I got into philosophy in the first place. That and I'd say calculus. Well, calculus is how my brain kind of started to think of things in a different way. In a way that, without lack of a better term, I'd say in a trippy way. So just a more mind-bending sort of way. The Stranger being a very relatable book, especially for someone who is in high school, who is an atheist, who doesn't believe in God, who had problems finding meaning growing up, and who experienced uh, certain traumas related to uh, certain people trying to inflict their beliefs upon me and their beliefs about meaning. And about, say, finding meaning in God, finding meaning in things that require faith and beliefs. And for someone, I, I don't know if any of you have ever lost faith in God, but for anyone who has ever lost faith in God, it is once you come to that conclusion that, hey, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, there is no hope that you will ever be able to believe in that ever again. But of course, that is primarily because the ideas about God in Western society are very uh, not simplistic. They're very simplistic. So when people talk about God when you're a kid, they talk about an old man in the sky, basically, that created everything. And so for atheists, once you start thinking a little bit, that becomes complete and utter nonsense. I mean, obviously, right? But as you get older and you start to, say, go on a philosophical journey like I went on, and you read The Stranger, you read Siddhartha, you look at Buddhism, Taoism, and psychedelics, you learn about all these different things, you hear all these things, and then you start to learn that God isn't... God isn't a man in the sky, right? God is something that people have to find on their own. And obviously we're talking about the stranger. That was my disclaimer. But the stranger brought me on this journey where as someone that didn't have any meaning in my life, I was going through this existential crisis. I read the stranger and I could really relate to it. But when I got to the end, there was like this, it, it, it's a book where they uh, they even say in the beginning of the book in the, uh, what is it? What do they call it? The translator's note. In the translator's note, they talk about how this book, while being very simplistic on first glance, if you're just reading it, 
it's a book that says a thousand more things with every word because it says more with what it doesn't say than what it says it's very simplistic and it basically it's almost like a man journaling his thoughts as he goes through life maybe like some kind of daily journal or something like that and obviously it's not written in that tone it's just it's a first person story and it's written in the first person as if this guy is like blogging basically to us and it says so much with how little it says because it's very descriptive it's very descriptive of events and feelings and things that are happening his internal physical sensations it's very descriptive of but it's not very descriptive of his thoughts about things. But as you read it, and especially if you read it a second time, you'll begin to see that there's very subtle clues as to what the narrator is thinking. Now, I, I would classify it as a... that I would say that the narrator is an untrustworthy narrator. I don't remember the exact term of that, an untrustworthy narrator. Just a, a narrator that you can't exactly trust everything that he says. I wouldn't call him that because you can trust everything that he says. It's just that uh, it takes a little bit more reading into it to kind of understand or at least attempt to understand what the narrator is thinking. The narrator being the protagonist named Rousseau, which is the the stranger. He is the stranger. So... Before we begin, I just wanted to say that the reason why I'm doing this episode is that in the episode where I interviewed Daniel, the episode about uh, Eric Weinstein and all that, I listed a poll, and I believe about 15 people said that they wanted me to do a review on The Stranger, so that's what we're doing today. Uh, If you want to follow along... I will be reading from the 1988 Vintage International Edition of the book, which was translated by Matthew Ward. So if you want to follow along, do that. I'm going to be going page by page, essentially. I'm going to be skipping some pages. So uh, that's why you should read it on your own. I would read it prior to listening to the podcast because this is more so you read it and then you know, you can listen to the podcast and then see what my thoughts are on it. And of course, I'm going to be listing a kind of a poll or whatever you'd call it in the description of the episode, uh, at least on Spotify. I don't believe it'll transfer over to Apple or any of those other platforms, but you can also comment on YouTube. So I will be releasing the YouTube video for this episode. And I'll also be sharing the screen of the book which I found the exact copy that I have in print. Uh, The copy that I have is this one. I don't know if any of you have read from this one, but if you're in a high school English class, you probably read The Stranger. So uh, I I do also want to just detail how, how The Stranger kind of brought me from a point of total atheism to a point of agnosticism over the course of five six years and i'm agnostic primarily because i realized that the belief that there is no god is also a belief and also that my beliefs about god were uh misconstrued 
which I mentioned earlier that I wasn't, I don't think I was believing in God in the right way. So, and I mean, obviously I'm not a religious man. I'm a very, I'm a very thinking kind of guy. <laughs> I don't know that that made no sense, but um, anyhow, I want to essentially when I say that I believe in God, I I believe in meaning and I believe that you can find meaning in this world. And when I read the end of the stranger that exploded in my mind with such severance that I like went down this rabbit hole of philosophy for years on end after I read the end of this book. And it like, I just have to give my severe gratitude to Albert Camus and in, in college, I read The Myth of Sisyphus, and that like that was probably the most important essay I've ever read, most important piece of literature I've ever read. So kudos to Albert Camus, and someday I hope to go to France and put some flowers on his grave. But anyhow, uh, I also wanted to mention that in the description of this episode, I have some links for some merchandise. Uh, my, my girlfriend designed some merchandise for me into the absurd so we have a shirt sweatshirt a coffee cup a bottle opener so you can crack open a beer you know listen to a podcast you know crack open a beer hang out with your buddies you know whatever you want but anyhow did i miss anything i did make some notes i will admit okay so I'm just going to be going through part one today. This book is in two parts. So I'll be going over part one and there are six chapters and I'll be going in order. So again, you can follow along if you'd like. All right. Let's do it. Let me share my screen. So it's cool because now I can, you know, highlight shit. I'm not going to go over the translator's notes. Uh, you can read that. It is very interesting, though. I would highly recommend reading it. If you do read the book, I highly recommend reading that. Um, yeah, the, the thing that I don't like about reading a podcast on this episode is that it might discourage people from reading it. You might not feel like you have to read it now that I'm telling you about it. But definitely read it and definitely read it before. Like, honestly, stop the episode right now and go read it before you listen to me talk about it because I don't want to influence you and your thinking on how this uh, book is or what's it about or what does it mean. So I highly encourage you to just stop right now, go read the book, and then come right on back. So, All right, let's get right into it. Part one. So on page three, we have the famous line, my man died today or yesterday, maybe. I don't know. So this line opens us up to what appears to be a very emotionally withdrawn protagonist. So his name's Rousseau again, right? So that that is, we know as much about Rousseau's emotions as we know, as we would know about a passing stranger in the street. So even to us, he's an unknown character. Even with what he's saying, he's writing his thoughts directly to us. But even to us, he's still an unknown character. He's very strange. We don't quite understand him. 
And people want to point fingers at him. Oh, he's a narcissist. He's a psychopath, uh, sociopath, yada, yada, yada. But that's not quite what's happening. And if you read into it, you'll see that he's not really any of those things. So although most people, when reading this line, the my man died yesterday or yesterday, maybe I don't know, they would conclude this stuff. They would conclude that he's always been a stranger. Although what I think would have an even more powerful philosophical implication is that he only became a stranger after his mom died. And uh, my man is like what they say in France. Uh, it, it's like what we it's like mommy almost or mom instead of mother. And he uses the phrase maman instead of the more formal French term. I don't know what it is. I forgot. And, and this is said in the translator's notes, but he uses that because it shows that he has a very, he's almost talking about talking to her like he's her child. So you can tell with the word of a man because it's informal that he does care about his mom because he's using mom, not mother. Right. So that that's just the first thing that I want to point out. So for for now, I'm gonna just extend those thoughts over to you guys. I'll go back to that later. So on page four, we begin to see Marceau's apologetic attitude and his people pleasing behavior in the sense that he frequently thinks that people are judging or criticizing him. We see this after the caretaker says you were you were her sole support. So just a little context in case you haven't, you're not reading it. Um, he's at the funeral home and the caretaker is the one telling him that when he's there getting ready for the funeral. And the funeral is being held, I think it's just nearby the home, like the old folks home. So, and he, you know, we see here, I thought he was criticizing me for something and I started to explain but he cut me off. You don't have to justify yourself, my dear boy. I've read your mother's file. You weren't able to provide for her properly. She needs someone to look after her. You earn only a modest salary, and the truth of the matter is she was happier here. So the caretaker is telling him that, hey, you don't have to explain yourself. Your mom was happy here. Don't worry about it, man. Right? And she was. From If you read it, it sounds like his his mom was happy there. And really, she had her support was the people who lived there, too. Right. So re regarding his mother, uh, with him explaining himself. Um, th this is that new kid phenomenon, right, where the new kid in school is always explaining themselves. They're shy. They're apologetic. So why? Well, that's because the, the new kid is a stranger. So so that that's kind of like uh, you don't really get this until you read it like a second or a third time that you start to see how he's a stranger, like why they call him the stranger, other than he's estranged from normal human emotions. But he's a stranger in many other ways, in the sense that he acts like a stranger towards people, as if he's he's a new person. So, so then we get to page five. And Rousseau didn't visit his mother because, let's see... Um, I should have annotated the online version, but I just saw the online version. I just found it. So, okay. That's probably why I didn't go 
very much this year and also because it took up my Sunday. Not to mention the trouble of getting to the bus, buying tickets, spending two hours traveling. Okay. So most people read this and are like, what the fuck? This guy's an asshole, right? He's not visiting his mother at all. So it, it seems insensitive. However, if one actually was in this situation, they would understand his sentiment, right? We, your mom goes to a home. It's, it's a ways away. And then, you know, you visit her a few times at first, but then eventually you kind of get used to it. She gets used to it. And then you kind of stop seeing her as much. Like uh, that, that's just kind of something that happens. And it, it happens to a lot of people. And you see in movies where uh, this sort of thing happens, the person dies and you're like, Oh, I should have, I should have went and visited them more. I should have done this. I should have done that. And most people don't think of that until right. Yeah. So th this reflects, but all, all this reflects the absurdity of modern moral modern morality in that people are quicker to judge than they are to see themselves in another person's shoes. So his mother was perfectly fine and happy at the home and didn't need her so to visit her at all. Yet the fact that he rarely visited her was later brought up in the court. Um, in the court's case, and of course, spoiler alert. So uh, just so you know, he murders someone later on and he has to go to court. So all this is brought up later on. And this I'll talk about that in part two. But uh, they bring this up to damage his character, but the the thing is like it, it's something that any normal person would any normal person could relate to that right any normal person would no matter how much you love your mom that's something that might happen to you too right so but pages 6 through 10 so i, I won't like i probably won't highlight anything throughout there but page 6 through 10 we see that Merceau gets annoyed by bright lights so he's very sensitive to things. He gets annoyed easily. He's very uh, in touch with his physical sensations. So uh, as well as people paying too close attention to him at the funeral. So he knows these things. He gets annoyed. So this part of the book is very descriptive of his physical sensations, probably more so than any other part of the book. I think it's just to kind of uh, kind of get us an idea of what this guy's like. He's very in tune with his physical sensations. So, but this particular chapter is mainly focused on the things that annoy him. So, we do not see Merceau getting sad at all. We just see him getting annoyed, or he's indifferent, or he's tired. So, while Versus may appear emotionless, it could just as likely be that he is either holding his emotions inside, like any other normal, mainly men, any other normal man, or the whole situation is just surreal for him, so it hasn't taken effect. And this is something that I relate to because when my grandpa Fred die, died, I wasn't around when he died. And I had the opportunity to visit him. I decided not to. I didn't think he was going to die. And then he died. And then I got the phone call and I was like, oh, wow, my grandpa died. And I didn't feel sad at the moment. I was kind of just shocked. It didn't feel real for me. And I went home after that. And... I was like, I only went home because I felt like I had to because he died. But if I didn't feel like I had to go home, I wouldn't have gone home. I would have kept longboarding with my buddy. Because it felt so surreal because I wasn't there. I didn't see him die. So it was like it didn't even feel like he died at all. It was just someone told me something. And as the stranger says several times throughout this book, it didn't mean anything. 
is words don't mean anything. It's what we see. It's what we experience. And that's one big point that is comes back at us again and again throughout this entire novel. So pay attention to that when you hear that phrase. It doesn't mean anything. So, so I aim towards that surreal part, again, because I have the life experience. And I, it's because he decides not to look at his mother's body. So when he's asked if he wants to. And, and perhaps he would look if he didn't care, right? If he didn't care, he would go look at the body. But it's in fact that he is not looking precisely because he simply doesn't want to care. That's at least my theory. He doesn't want to care. He doesn't want it to be real that his mom died. Because when you hear that someone dies, like part of you kind of just wants to keep it. You want to keep it away from you. And that's a Charles Zapp, right? That's isolation. You want to keep that concept of death away from you. Keep that stress. Keep all those horrors away from you. And I think uh, that's partially what's happening here obviously you could also interpret it as he's just indifferent to it and eh, i don't care i don't need to see her but it's hard for you to interpret it that way at least after that's how i interpreted it the first time i read it but now i'm reading it now i'm like eh, it's i can't really interpret it that way so so in a sense he may want to remain in the dark he wants to remain a stranger to the situation it could just as easily be that the stranger being a stranger to the world is likewise free in this world and feels totally content. So whether his mom dies or not, you know, it doesn't affect him regardless. So seeing or not seeing doesn't matter. Also in these pages, uh, lines such as when people say you shouldn't, you shouldn't do this, or when Marceau says, I'm not sure if I should uh, to certain things, I won't describe them. I mean, you'll, you'll see them if you read it. Uh, exemplify the absurdity of social cues. So people are telling what he should and shouldn't do, and he's considering, oh, should I do this, should I do that, uh, at the funeral. So people think that they should or shouldn't do things uh, for no other reason other than someone told them. Right? Oh, well, they told me not to do that, or there are certain social cues that tell you not to do it. Okay. So then we get to page 10. Okay. So he mentions after taking a seat next to the coffin, but in front of the old people that, so he's like sitting in the funeral home and he's on one side, they're on the other side. He's right next to the coffin and they're all looking at him in the coffin. Okay. So he says that for a second, I had the ridiculous feeling that they were there to judge me. So this does two things. One, it foreshadows the murder trial later on, so where he's going to be judged. And two, it exemplifies that whether we are in a court or not, we're always being judged. If not by others, then by ourselves. This makes life more absurd in that we restrict some of our behavior, even harmless ones, purely because of social cues and the fear of judgment. In a sense, the only way to escape judgment is by embracing the absurd. Now, he is not really embracing the absurd at this point. So a lot of people would call him a static character that's unchanging. But if you read it a few times, you'll see that, at least in my opinion, you'll see that he's a changing character, that he doesn't start to embrace the absurd until after the murder trial. He starts to kind of dive into it a little bit. 
And he, he said, because things get so absurd and he starts getting his head so much about it that eventually he's like, fuck it. I'm just going to embrace this shit. Right. If you, if you can't beat him, join him. Right. <laughs> so I, I want to go back to my previous idea of his mother's death, turning him into a stranger, turning him into the stranger. So the death of his mother could have put him in an absurd state of depression, at least in, in my opinion. But in this, he almost estranged. He's almost estranged from the absurdity of modern life. He's more in the moment. He's not distracted by all these different modern concepts, right? all these social cues. So we, we see various descriptions of beautiful yet ordinary things. That is, his estrangement from society gives him the freedom to look at the world as if he's new to it, as if seeing it all for the first time. And his depression is, in a sense, a form of rebirth, or at least a transitory period prior to his rebirth. So, in, in a sense, he's dead. Um, and, and on tangent here, I highly recommend reading um, what's it called? Ever right here, actually. It's called The Sacred Mushroom and the Cross. It's it's like a kind of a conspiracy theory about the secret origins of Christianity through the realm of psychedelics uh, and ancient fertility cults. Just throwing it out there because it has a lot to do with death and rebirth. So that's partially why death and rebirth were on my mind when I'm doing this analysis. But anyhow, so with this death, he likewise sees the ugliness in the world. Just like a child, they'll cry, they'll be angry, they'll be super happy, they'll go through all this whirlwind of emotions. So the thing is, when I was first taught this in high school, we were taught that M was a static character. That's, that's what I was just talking about. And of course, I'm reading off notes, guys. I'll be fully transparent. I'm reading off notes. Okay, guys, because I, I'm not going to do all this like off the top of my head, because of course, obviously, I want to give you analysis, right? And I'm, you can't really give an analysis off the top of your head. Sure, I can give some like little notes, but you know, I'm a rambler, and I don't want to ramble more than I need to. So I need like a concise, strict set of notes to go over. But it's a little behind the scenes action here. I'll slide it over to you. Oh boy, my email. All right, it's right there. But all right. So, anyways, thing is, when I was first taught this in high school. We were taught that M was, or Marceau, was a static character who was always a stranger rather than his mother's death turning into turning him into one, right? But most people likewise did not think there was any character development throughout the plot. That's what I was talking about. And while this might be true, there are very subtle suggestions throughout the book that display Marceau's progression on some kind of spiritual journey. And maybe it was just me like projecting my own spiritual journey reading this book uh that could very well be possible since it's such a since the book is so like not descriptive i think it also tells more than it says precisely because with the lack of description we imagine things more so it kind of becomes a more meaningful book in that way i don't know if you've ever seen the movie the guilty but in this movie, it's about a uh, this like police phone operator, or whatever you know, the people who, when you call nine one one, they're on the other end, and the whole thing is shot in one area, and it's just him talking on the phone, and then you like imagine everything. It's such an enticing story; it's amazing. Uh, highly recommend it. But 
that's kind of what happens when you leave less out it makes the other person imagine more so so um let me switch hold up hold on hold your horses okay so while this may be true there are very subtle suggestions that in the book there are some kind of spiritual journey right uh, this is an important observation because it shows us how death can create a new life in all of us. So it can bring us back to earth, back down to earth, and like a child with the knowledge of an adult. So, all right. So we're moving on to chapter two. Can't tell if I... There we go, chapter two. I'm pretty sure chapter one is like one of the longest chapters. Okay. So we begin to see that Merceau, while being the stranger, is nonetheless very understanding of other people, even if they annoy him or if he thinks they're ridiculous or a bad person or whatever. So this is interesting because why would a stranger understand us better than others? And to me, it's the same reason why a human knows a fish is in water while a fish does not. So it's the outsider effect. When an outsider comes in and they see what's going on, they have a little bit better logic. It's like if someone's in a cult and you're not in the cult and you go and you look at what they're doing and you're like, what the fuck is going on here, right? Then it's because you're not in it. So you haven't been immersed in it. So you can see the fucked up shit that's going on because you're on the outsider's view point, right? So we are then introduced to Marceau's love interest, which is a woman named Marie. And she comes and goes throughout the novel, uh, but she's largely like one of the most important characters. And she represents, at least in my opinion, she represents uh, the absurdity found in love and relationships. And the fact that most of it is semantics and social cues slash expectations. Or a uh, role playing in a sense, so, um, and and like obviously you know, uh, obviously there's nothing wrong with the semantics and social cues and the role playing. Um, I mean, I love being in relationships, and I love my current relationship. I love my girlfriend, and obviously, to all you listening who have a boyfriend or girlfriend or a wife or husband or whatever, uh, you know that um, just because maybe these things are a little absurd and maybe they are just social inventions, they're also very meaningful and wonderful things, right? So it's uh, just keep in mind that I'm not saying that these things aren't important, and I don't think the stranger is either. Uh, because if you see his actions, you'll see that he does find these things important, right? Um, it's just... the the words about them, the meaning of them in written word is meaningless. It's not the actual relationship itself that's meaningless, right? So, on page 20, uh, let me get to it. So, after Marceau asked her on a movie date, Marie asked him how long ago his mom died, which replies, yesterday. So, told him a man had died yesterday. She wanted to know how long ago, so I said yesterday. Right. She gave a little start but didn't say anything. So she was like, uh like, should I say something? I'm like, uh, not gonna say anything, right? So he, he thinks I felt like telling her it wasn't my fault. 
But I stopped myself because I remembered that I'd already said that to my boss. It didn't mean anything. Besides, you always feel a little guilty. So again, we see the themes of judgment and guilt being repeated here. Merceau possibly feels guilty for going uh, out and having fun right after his mother's death. So as if he should feel bad for trying to feel better. So people in our society are made to feel guilty for not feeling things that we are socially inclined to feel. Moreover, we must likewise be guilty for things that are not even our fault to begin with. So in a sense, we're destined to be blamed for that which is out of our control. Uh, we're, we're destined to be guilty even when we're innocent, right? Guilty until proven innocent, but in reality, we're guilty no matter what, right? So it, it is such that we are strangers and aliens. Did I just say guilty until proven innocent instead of innocent until proven guilty? I mean, honestly, that is the case, though, right? We are guilty until proven innocent. Uh, when someone thinks that we're guilty, we're going to be guilty until we're proven innocent. We're not innocent until proven guilty. Giving people the benefit of the doubt is very uncommon. Obviously, in the legal system, you're according to the law, you are, but in people's heads, no. So it is such that we are strangers and aliens to the judgment that is casted upon us. So for the remainder of the chapter, Marceau wakes up with Marie gone. Then he sleeps until noon and essentially he spends the rest of the day people watching. And it's a very interesting scene. It's very like, I can imagine it very vividly. Um, kind of one of those Sunday afternoons, like right after the rain, there's some sun and whatnot. So, so he, he just watches people from his bedroom window, which kind of appears creepy, but in reality, like, if you were in his shoes, you'd understand that it's not creepy. He's just kind of like sitting there looking out, pondering life, basically. Obviously, you don't hear his ponderings of life, but he's sitting there for six hours. So he's got to be thinking about a lot of shit, right? So it, it's as if that it's as if Merceau is at a zoo peering off at another species. He's a stranger, right? So it, it this really demonstrates it in this chapter. You really see like why he's a stranger or why it's called a stranger. So the, the chapter leaves us off on page 24 with, um, here, let me find page 24. Leaves us off with, the, it occurred to me, it occurred to me, it's okay, I wrote it down. It occurred to me that anyway, one more Sunday was over, that my man was buried now, that I was going back to work, and that really... Nothing had changed. So, that is life goes on. It's interesting because later on he's heavily judged for seeming to not care about his mother's death, yet, this line shows us that it is actually everyone else except for the stranger and perhaps a few of the old folks who don't care. So we continue to see Marceau's carefree attitude in chapter three uh, and his living in the moment mentality. So going back to chapter three and pay attention to this part. I worked hard at the office today. 
Um, you, you'll see why when we go to chapter four. So he is constantly fully immersed in his environment, whether that means immersed in how annoying it is or how pleasant, right? So we see just how carefree he is when we see him interact with people like Salomano and Raymond, who are both what most would not consider to be the greatest of people. So we're introduced to old Salamano and his dog on page 27. So Salamano has read a scab. So they're both kind of these Salamano is like this old man with a bunch of like scabs and shit. He looks like he's diseased and his dog is the same way. Just scabs, really old, things like that. So that we kind of start to see their love hate relationship for each other. Um, Salamano it also says that uh, Salamano was with his dog. He was with his dog. So if we want to do the control find. See. With his dog. So. So. Now I want to read this part. It's from the translator's note. When Marceau meets old Salamano's dog in the dark stairwell of their apartment house, Marceau observes. I don't know what that means. I think it means he's with his dog, with the reflex of a well-bred Englishman. Silver restores a conventional relationship relation between man and beast and gives additional adverbial information. As usual, he had his dog with him. So that was the old translator. But I have taken Rousseau at his word. He was with his dog in the way one is with a spouse or friend. A sentence as straightforward as this gives us the world through Marceau's eyes. As he says toward the end of the, his story, as he sees things, Salmano's dog was worth just as much as Salmano's wife. Such peculiarities of perception, such psychological increments of character are Marceau. It is by pursuing what is unconventional in Camus' writing that one approaches a degree of it still startling originality. Which is very, very true if you read it. He is with his dog like he would be with a spouse. Um, he's with his dog constantly. His dog kind of controls his life. Uh, and he controls the dog's wife. They're codependent, etc., etc. So, Salmano takes his dog on the same walk twice a day, every day. And he's done it for the past eight years. And every time he always ends up beating and swearing at the dog. Uh, the book talks about the dog running past him and then Salamano getting pissed off and beating the dog, the dog whimpering back. And then he's starting to tug the dog and the dog tugs him. It's like this rending struggle. So, so what? So uh, he, he ended up beating the dog. And then when, when Marceau asked what the dog did, Salamano says he's just there. That is, Salmono is mad at the dog precisely because he has the dog, as if abusing it for its very existence. So I, I wonder here if Salmono's dog represents one's life. So we, we punish ourselves for our very existence. I bring this analogy up because the obvious question here is, why not just get rid of the dog? Right. That is, why not commit suicide? I say this because Salmono is comparable to Sisyphus, in that Salamano and his dog, and I highly recommend if you haven't read Sisyphus, pause right now, go read Sisyphus and come back. All right. I'll maybe I'll post a link. Hopefully I remember, but just go check it out. Highly recommend. So I wonder here if Salamano's dog represents one's life. 
So we, we punish ourselves for our very existence. And I, I bring this analogy up because the obvious question here is, why not just get rid of the dog? That is, why not commit suicide? I say this because Salomano is comparable to Sisyphus and that Salomano and his dog. And yes, I just repeated all that. I've been doing the same things at the same times with the same set of struggles and behaviors every day for eight years. Right? And Salomano can't stand the dog. Yet he centers his life without the dog. Or he centers his life around the dog. Right. In many ways, as we will see later, he would rather live in agony with the dog than live without the dog at all. So the dog is then, in a sense, Sisyphus's boulder. We can likewise compare Salomano's relationship to his dog to the concepts of existential weight that we discussed in the unbearable lightness of being episode. And Salomano is weighed down by the dog while Marceau is very light. At least it appears like he's light. So on page 28, um, we're introduced to Raymond. Raymond Sins. Um, and supposedly he lives off women, um, as in he's a pimp. So he he's perhaps one of the most important characters as far as the plot is concerned. So he, again, he supposedly lives off women, like he's a pimp or something. And he has this problem with this girl, um, who like, I've, he he like wouldn't work or whatever and he was spending his money or something and he confronted her and he was talking to Rousseau about and everything and had Rousseau write a letter or testimony or something for court. He ended up beating the girl or whatever and all these Arabs got mad because the Arabs I guess he was Arabian or whatever and they were her brothers or something. I don't quite remember. Uh, it'll take too much time to kind of look through. But Anyhow, he beats this girl, and then the Arabs get pissed off, and they follow Raymond and whatnot. And that's kind of like what the plot kind of turns into. So just so you know when I go over that later on. So they were all kind of sitting in the hallway of the apartment complex or whatever. And after Salomano goes to his room while they're all in the hallway, uh, Raymond asks Marceau if he thought the two of them were disgusting. To which Marceau replies, no. Okay, so so replies no. Warehouse guard. Okay, well, whatever. Okay, uh, again, while everyone else is judgmental, Merceau remains a passive observer. So the stranger merely looks at the world, and he's unable to judge it. He's only observing and feeling the world. He's a stranger to it. So many people also dislike Raymond, but Rousseau doesn't care and likes hearing him talk. Okay. So many people also dislike him. I just said that. So a stranger unrestricted by society is free to listen and understand even to the most vile of human beings. So that brings us to chapter four. Boom, boom, boom. Definitely read this book. Okay. I worked hard all week. So that's kind of a repeat of the chapter three line where he says, I worked hard in the office today. So the parallel here, I believe, could perhaps be that Merceau spent the whole week more or less doing the same things every day. 
So like bumping into old Salamano a few times, seeing Marie, listening to Raymond talk, etc. I think this is the case because of Camus' Sisyphean thinking and that he wrote the myth of Sisyphus. So there's probably some kind of thing. I'd have to assume that he thinks of things in this way, in this very Sisyphean way. So um, kind of about the monotony of daily life. So this Sisyphean viewpoint appears to have likewise taken over the protagonist as another reason why it is called a stranger. Um, because M lives much of his life on autopilot. He's going to work every day. He's working hard. He does all these things, right? While there is an element of agency, it appears that Marceau does not necessarily think that his actions are well-planned or thought out. While he is aware that he is making decisions, it seems to him that his decisions and actions don't really matter. He could have just as easily done something else instead of what he chooses to do. Okay. So we'll go to page 35. So when speaking to Marie, we read the following. Um, where is it? Mm -hmm. Later. Yeah. No. A minute later, he asked. So a minute later, she asked if I loved her. I told her it didn't mean anything but that I didn't think so. Okay. She looked sad, but as we were fixing lunch and for no apparent reason, she laughed in such a way that I kissed her. It was then that we heard what sounded like a fight break out in Raymond's room. Okay. So, Merceau, while telling Marie that love as a concept was meaningless, his actions tell a different story, right? So he, he kisses her. Through Marceau's actions, he emphasizes the importance of feelings and actions while casting all words and symbols down as meaningless. Telling Marie that he loved her meant nothing to Marceau. Or perhaps it meant so many things that to say such words would be misleading. Right? Instead of telling her that he loved her, he opted to kiss her instead. Right? So there was no misleading, misinterpretation, etc. with the act of kissing unless you think into it, right? Until you start thinking about it, the act of kissing, there's no misinterpretation of it. It's just a kiss, right? Nor could it express an exaggeration, a promise, or anything of the sort. The phrase, I love you, represents a state of being that takes on a semi-permanent form. So to the contrary, a kiss shows one's current feelings and affection towards the other person. So we find out on page 38 that Salamano had lost his dog. So let's go to page 38. Stinking bastard, he went fidgeting around. I asked him where his dog was. He stopped me and said he was gone. Okay. So uh, he asked Rousseau if the people to pound would take the dog away from him. So Rousseau replies that they kept the dog for three days and they got rid of him. They killed him, basically. They then part ways, and we read. So, let's see where that part is. And from the peculiar little noise coming through the partition, I realized he was crying. For some reason, I thought of a man. 
but I had to get up early the next morning. I wasn't hungry, and I went to bed without any dinner. So this line right here is probably one of the most important lines as far as seeing how he says so much with so little, right? You kind of have to decipher it a little bit. I realized he was crying. For some reason, I thought I'm a man. So the fact that he lost his dog and he's crying about it, that reminds him of his mother, right? And he says, for some reason, I thought of my man. But we know the reason, right? Because he lost his dog and it made him sad, right? So now he's thinking of his mom. He lost his mom and that makes him sad. And going back to the fact that Salomon was with his dog like he would be with a spouse, we also know that Merceau was in a way with his mom because his mom lived with him. His mom would follow him around with his eyes while he walked around his apartment. So Merceau spent a lot of time with his mother. I mean, honestly, I'd call my mama's boy. right? Um, but he had to get up the next morning. Right? So hearing about Solomon losing his dog reminds Merceau of losing his mom. This saddens him so much that he's not even hungry for dinner. And he goes to bed without it. So um, it is as if we are looking at the stranger from afar, wondering about the madness that lies within. The stranger is just as much a mystery to us as the universe is to us. In that way, he represents the absurd tranquility of an accepting universe. For most of part one, it is up to the reader to interpret it Merceau, and it is only near his death in which we read his thoughts. And I mean, a lot of part two, you kind of see his more deeper thoughts. So the novel begins with him losing his mother, and it ends with him losing himself. So I, I highly recommend a reading anti-Oedipus on this one, and kind of reading up on Freud thinking, like Freudian thinking, and Oedipus. Because it's very like loses his mother, then he loses himself. It's very Oedipusian. I don't know the word. I don't know the term for that. So loss is a concept that is explored several times throughout the novel. And his mother's death, Salmano's dog, Raymond's relationship with his girlfriend, the murder of the Arab, the loss of Marceau's freedom when he goes to prison, and finally the loss of his life when he's executed. So loss is a very important theme in the story. So uh, Salamana losing his dog was akin to Rousseau losing his mother. All right. So that brings us to chapter five. All right. So this is probably one of the deepest chapters. I'd say chapter six is the most deep chapter. I This is the deepest chapter so far. Now. And I don't even include that many quotes in here it's there's a few like excerpts like big long paragraphs that are very important so on page 40 he is invited to raymond's friend's beach house to which we read i said i'd really like to so i said i really like to but i'd promise to spend the day with a girlfriend okay so what's peculiar here that he uses a instead of my, 
which almost makes it appear that he has multiple girlfriends. But obviously, he's talking about Marie. Hold up. The dog the dog is uh, whining. I got to go check on it. I'll cut this part out. All right, we're back. So, obviously, the girlfriend is Marie. Right. But he uses the word A instead of B. So, with that said, um, he obviously doesn't have multiple girlfriends, right? at least as far as the book discloses, right? So, with that said, the use of the word A shows a lack of possessiveness over Marie, um, a lack of attachment. So, he's unattached. Also, that's also why I get some very Buddhist themes to this book and the way that he acts. Um, he's very, like, Buddhist in a sense. Um, I would read Siddhartha to, like, see what I mean by that. So this paired with the uh, with moving most of his things to his room. So he moves most of his stuff, his belongings to his room because he felt like uh, he had too much space. So he moves all the stuff out of the living room. Like, he was like, oh, I only live in one room now. So uh, this... Um, he kind of exemplifies his unmaterialistic living in the moment lifestyle. Um, Rousseau is a free spirit and he attaches himself to nothing. Just as a stranger is out of place and unattached to all the new worlds he finds himself in. Right? If you're in a new place, you're not attached to that new place. So on page 40 through 41, and just so you know, the dog is chewing on a bone right now. So I don't know if you might be able to hear that. I'll show the dog for clout. Not. It's my girlfriend's dog. Why not? If you're on YouTube, you can see the dog. But if you're on a Spotify or whatever, you can. So I'm sorry. Um, honestly, the I mainly do the podcast for the Spotify folks. No offense, no offense, but I'm slowly starting to try to like use YouTube a little bit more, mainly because the algorithm is so good. Um, and also, like, why not have a little bit of a visual display for everyone? You know, so. Um, so on pages 40 through 41, Rousseau starts to open up philosophically with. Um, let's see. A little later, my boss sent for me, and for a second, I was annoyed because I thought he was going to tell me to do less talking on the phone and more work. But that wasn't it at all. He told me he wanted to talk to me about a plan of his that was still pretty vague. He just wanted to have my opinion on the matter. He was planning to open an office in Paris, which would handle his business directly with the big companies, on the spot, and he wanted to know how I felt about going there. I'd be able to live in Paris and to travel around for part of the year as well. You're young. And it seems to me it's the kind of life that would appeal to you. I said yes, but that really it was all the same to me. Then he asked me if I was, wasn't interested in a change of life. I said that people never change their lives. That in any case, one life was as good as another. And that I wasn't dissatisfied with mine here at all. He looked upset and told me that I never gave him a straight answer, that I had no ambition, and that was disastrous in business. So this is uh, this particular part. 
never gave him a straight answer. I had no ambition. Um, this kind of delves into how Marceau has always been. He's always been a people pleaser, right? He's always been like, oh, it doesn't really matter that much to me. That doesn't necessarily mean that he was less indifferent or more indifferent prior to this event or just the same amount of indifference because I argue that after the mother's death, he became more indifferent. Um, so I went back to work. I'd rather not have upset him, but I couldn't see any reason to change my life. Looking back on it, I wasn't unhappy. When I was a student, I had lots of ambitions like that, but when I had to give up my studies, I learned very quickly none of it really mattered. So this is like the most relatable quote in the whole thing. Uh, this is kind of like why like when you're an adult, you'll really... If you're listening to this and you're in high school and you're just learning about the book, come back and read the book again like in five years, five to six years, and you'll see why this is such an important line. It's because, yeah, well, when you're a student, you have lots of ambitions and you're like, oh, I want to do this. I want to be a doctor. I want to save the world all this stuff. But then when you become an adult, you kind of get brought down to earth a little bit. Um, you know, you get a girlfriend, you start wanting to get married, you want to um, have a family, all these things. And you start to realize that none of these freaking ambitions matter. Like, <laughs> like famous podcaster, famous writer, you know, who gives a shit, man? Just chill, live your life, do what you want to do. Right. Just have fun, live in the moment. The moment is the only thing that really matters, right? So, um, Merceau is content with his life no matter where he goes. He is self-reliant, at, at least if we're going by Emerson's standards. So, and if you're new to the podcast, go back and I recommend checking out uh, Mine and Mina's nine-part series on Emerson. Uh, his self-reliance essay. It's long-winded, but go take a gander. It's good. Or just read the essay. Uh, so it, this is also deeply Buddhist in the sense that he is almost saying that all lives are more or less the same. We're all mere observers. And in a Sisyphean sense, we can see this uh, as that everyone has their own boulder to push up a hill. Though perhaps a boulder may be made of a different rock or might be a different color, it nonetheless remains to be a boulder, right? So on pages 41 through 42, we read, That evening, um, let me find it. That evening, Marie came by to see me and asked me if I wanted to marry her. I said it didn't make any difference to me and that we could if she wanted to. Then she wanted to know if I loved her. I answered the same way I had the last time, that it didn't mean anything, but that I probably didn't love her. So why marry me then? Yes. I explained to her that it didn't really matter, and that if she wanted to, we could get married. Besides, she was the one who was doing the asking, and all I was saying was yes. Right? That's all he's saying. Yeah, we could if you wanted to. He's saying yes. Right? Yes, we can get married. Then she pointed out that marriage was a serious thing. I said, no. She stopped talking for a minute and looked at me without saying anything. 
Then she spoke. She just wanted to know if I would have accepted the same proposal from another woman with whom I was involved in the same way. I said, sure. So basically, she's asking him, if I was someone else and you were involved with her in the same exact way, would you get married to her? To which he says, yes. I mean, that's, I mean, obviously he would, right? If he was involved with the same, with a different woman in the same exact way, he would get married to her, right? So that, that makes sense. It's not even an absurd thing. Then she said she wondered if she loved me. So she's now questioning if she loves him, right? And there was no way I could know about that. So she's asking, I'm not sure if I love you. And then he's like, yeah, there's no way that I could know that, right? I don't know if you asked me that, but I, I can't tell you if you love me. So after another moment's silence, she mumbled that I was peculiar. Okay. I'm putting the dog outside. She wants too much of my attention, right? Oh, because you want my attention? Come here. Are you absurd? You want to be on the pod? All right, tell everyone what you want. You want to go outside? You want to go outside? Huh? Shit. Shit, I think she wants to go outside, don't you? Don't you? You want to go outside? Huh? She's like, I want to go outside. Outside's not absurd to me, bitch. Take me outside. You can go later outside. I'll cut this part out. Whether she goes outside, whether she does not go outside, it matters to Oakley. She wants to go outside very much. So, um, so, so essentially, he is saying, sure, why not? It's up to you. Right? Because he legitimately doesn't care if they are or are not married. And when she tells him that marriage was a serious matter, as if telling him that he should not be so carefree about it, he responds, no. Just straight up, no. It's not a serious matter. Merceau does not take life seriously, let alone marriage, right? So he, he doesn't take any sort of man-made concept seriously, such as love, marriage, religion, etc. Marriage is a made-up concept, and Merceau recognizes that. Why not get married when it wouldn't matter in the end whether they did or didn't, right? Um, so, I mean, I, it is a made-up concept. I mean, obviously, I value marriage. Like, I want to get married, right? But if I step back for a moment and see this objectively, it is very much a made-up concept, and it doesn't it doesn't really matter in an objective sense. It matters in a subjective sense very, very much. Marriage matters a lot to me, but in an objective sense, it doesn't really matter. It's like this made-up concept, right? Made up by society. Um, and honestly, it was created so that men could own women in a sense. So it's also very like, it has its roots in a very uh, patriarchal sense. Um, not say, I'm not trying to say that in like a woke liberal like kind of ordeal, but it does have its roots in a very patriarchal um, man is the boss sort of thing but obviously nowadays marriage is different marriage is about love so um and it's also like a symbol uh it's a very powerful symbol and it's also good for taxes so marriage marriage matters to me and i think marriage is a good thing um i think it helps people to grow um, because it helps them compromise with someone who's different than them and obviously men and women are very different uh, I think 
any two people. So like if you're gay, any two people, you're very different from one another. And if you can live the rest of your life together, like you're a strong motherfucker. If you can uh, live the rest of your life with one other person. Right. So it, it does help you grow. But in the context of the story, what that's totally besides the point, what he's trying to say is that it doesn't matter if he gets married or not, because marriage in and of itself is a made up concept by society. Right. It doesn't matter if we get married or not. Things are going to be, remain relatively the same. The only difference is that there's a label now. Right. So that moves us to chapter six. Skip all this, skip all this. Um, all right. Chapter six. So. Marceau, Marie, and Raymond go to Raymond's friend's beach house. The Arabs, who were close to the woman that Raymond beat, seem to be following Raymond there. So, on page 50, let's get to it. Page 50, Raymond, Raymond's friend's friend Mason, or Masson, I'll just call him Mason, his wife and Marie were all hanging out in the kitchen at the beach house, and we read, Just then, just then, where is it? There it is. Just then, his wife was laughing with Marie. For the first time, maybe, I really thought I was going to get married. Okay. So this is something many of us feel when we're on a double date as adult. And our partner gets along with our friend's partner. It's said so simply, but only those of us who have experienced this would understand what he meant by it. It is the archetype of the sitcom friend group, right? This happy bunch of people, you know, these two are together, these two are together, right? And you like feel like, oh, things are going so well, I want to happen forever, right? Uh, it, we, we see ourselves spending our days with our wife and our friends. The moment of Marie laughing with Mason's wife is eternalized as something he almost longs to occur until the end of time. Yet, as we soon find out, such a dream is crushed and eliminated forever from his life. But, going back to the archetype of the happily ever after friend group, such is something that many of us experience in our lives. We're out with friends and a euphoric feeling hits us in such a way that we never want the moment to end. This is another reason why Marceau's life is, as he says, not any better or different than anyone else's. So we all feel and experience these archetypes in our lives. There's virtually no escaping them. The stranger then starts describing how wonderful a day it is on the beach, in which, and again, in such a way that only those who have experienced this will understand, he's in love with Marie and very happy. In many ways, just as a side note, this novel is far more relatable as an adult. Again, I know I said that earlier, but it's way more relatable as an adult. So if you're in side school, again, just come back in like five to six years and read it again. Page 52. So go to page 52. So everyone is a little buzz and Mason, Raymond, and Marceau go down the beach. this point, we see a change in the mood. The past couple pages, Marceau was very happy and perhaps even euphoric. But a shift occurs when he says, the sun was shining almost directly overhead onto the sand, and the glare on the water was unbearable. 
There was no one left on the beat. Okay. So this does two things. It foreshadows that something bad is going to happen. And it demonstrates just how fleeting feelings and dreams are. That just moments earlier, he was very happy. And he was imagining the future with his wife and Mason and Mason's wife. Or Marie, Mason and Mason's wife, right? And now he's annoyed. Thoughts of his fairy tale, his sitcom life, they're out of the question now. He's not even thinking about them. He totally forgot about them, right? They're not a concern whatsoever. Life is unpredictable. It merely happens. Life happens. And one life is no different than his own precisely because no one really has any control over the events that transpire in their lives. No one asks to be born. So on pages 53 through 55, we see that the Arabs are on the other end of the beach walking towards them and eventually a fight breaks out. Okay. So um, the fight breaks out, Raymond gets cut and the Arabs run off. So then after Raymond gets bandits back at the house, he returns to the beach and Rousseau follows. So they walk on the beach for a while and find the Arabs sitting by a stream that flowed in the ocean. On page 56, uh, as Raymond aims at the Arabs with his pistol, we read, we read, uh, no. I said to Raymond, take him on man to man and give me your gun. If the other one moves in or if he draws his knife, I'll let him have it. The sun glinted off Raymond's gun as he handed it to me. But we just stood there motionless. As if everything had closed in around us, we stared at each other without blinking, and everyone came to a stop there between the sea, the sand, and the sun, the double silence of a flute in the water. It was then that I realized that you could either shoot or not shoot, but all of a sudden, the Arabs backing away slipped behind the rock. So Raymond and I turned and headed back the way we came. He seemed better and talked about the bus back. Okay. So. The line, you could either shoot or not shoot, is perhaps one of the most philosophically important lines in the whole book. Uh, to shoot or not to shoot would make no real difference because, in a sense, one was destined to do one or the other. And what they chose would cause the following event in their lives to play out. There are the following events. There was no going back in time to make a different choice. In that sense, we were destined always and eternally to do one or the other. Didn't matter, though, because we were only going to do one or the other. We can only do one. Or the other. You can either shoot or you can not shoot, right? You can't do both. You can't shoot and then decide to not shoot because you already shot, right? Uh, this point is further explained on page 57 when Merceau is wondering whether to go back inside the beach house with Raymond or continue walking on the beach, to which you read, to stay or to go, right? I'll, well, go to stay or to go. It amounted to the same thing, right? To stay or to go, it amounted to the same thing. A minute later, I turned back towards the beach and started walking. Indeed, what did every decision lead to in the end? Led to death, right? All of our lives always amounted to the same exact thing, and that was death. To Camus, 
Death means eternal oblivion. Our finite lives end in eternal nothingness. We die, and then we're gone. It is such that this finite life, no matter what decisions we make or who we are, is wiped clean by death. So this is kind of the first, this is like the nihilist talking, right? So this is before he embraces the absurd, right? So right now he's a nihilist. Nothing matters. Um, we're just all, we're all going to die. Nothing matters. Whatever we do, that amounts to the same thing, death, right? So no, no matter what decision we make or who we are, it is wiped clean by our deaths. In that regard, we were all just atoms floating aimlessly through space, right? That's all we are. And so to stay or to go, it meant no difference in the grand scheme of things, at least in Rousseau. So two paragraphs later, Rousseau is going back to the spot by the stream to relax and finds that one of the Arabs had come back and was laying alone on his bunk. Okay. From a distance, I could see the small, dark mass of rocks surrounded by the halo, blah, blah, blah. Rearman's man had come back. He was alone. He was lying on his bunk. Okay. And it's important to note here that Rousseau still has his pistol. Right. And on page 58, we read, as far as I was concerned, the whole thing was over, and I'd gone there without even thinking about it. Okay. Yet, it is almost obvious that this was always going to happen. And in many ways, we can assume that Marceau knew this too. Right? From the moment he decided to go back inside, the, to not go back inside the beach house, he knew that he was going to walk back over there. With a pistol in hand, walking back to the exact location, that they had just saw the arrows, Rousseau knew very well what he was going back to. But consciously, perhaps he wasn't. With that said, it was less that he went there knowing he was going to confront him again, but rather that he was fated to go there. That he was always going to go there. Pistol in hand. Now, we're left off on part one with the following passage. So let's get to it. It occurred to me that all I had to do was turn around and that would be the end of it. But the whole beach throbbing in the sun was pressing on my back. I took a few steps toward the spring. The Arab didn't move. Besides, he was still pretty far away. Maybe it was the shadows on his face, but it looked like he was laughing. I waited. The sun was starting to burn my cheeks and I could feel drops of sweat gathering in my eyebrows. The sun was the same as it had been the day I buried my man. It is important to remember that. And like then, my forehead especially was hurting me. All the veins in it throbbing under the skin. It was this burning, which I couldn't stand anymore, that made me move forward. I knew that I was, that it was stupid, that I wouldn't get the sun off me by stepping forward. But I took a step, one step forward. And this time, without getting up, the Arab drew his knife and held it up to me in the sun. The light shot off the steel. And it was like, I also want to, just for a moment, I also want to say, it was this burning, which I couldn't stand anymore, that made me move forward. I knew it was that it was stupid, that I wouldn't get the sun off me by stepping forward. So there's, I've experienced this before, where you're standing in the sun and you move forward, but the sun's still there. It's like, you can't escape it. You can't escape the sun. It's like always there. Always on top of you, you can't escape it. It's something that I think lots of people experience when you're just standing out in the sun and you like move a little bit to try to almost as if you're trying to get away from it, but you can't, right? Can't escape the sun. 
So I, I think in a way, like this could be interpreted as you can't escape fate. I knew it was stupid, right? I knew that it was stupid that I wouldn't get the sun off me by stepping forward, right? He's not going to get rid of the Arab by shooting him. He's not going to... Um, you can't escape fate, right? Because as you step forward, you're still stepping into the sun, right? You can't escape fate by stepping forward because you're still in the sun. You're still in the sunlight. But I took a step, one step forward. And this time, without getting up, the Arab drew his knife and held it up to me in the sun. The light shot off the steel, and it was like a long, flashing blade cutting at my forehead. So it felt as if he was already getting cut by the knife. At the same instant, the sweat in my eyebrows dripped down over my eyelids all at once and covered them with a warm, thick film. My eyes were blinded behind the curtains of tears and salt. All I could... Tears and salt. You see that? Tears and salt. Like, as if he's sad, right? He's, like, stressed out a little bit. Um, all I could feel were the symbols of sunlight crashing on my forehead and, indistinctively, the dazzling spear flying up, the spirit flying up from the knife in front of me. The scorching blade slashed my eyelashes and stabbed my seeing eyes. That's when everything began to reel. The sea carried up a thick, fiery breath. It seemed to me as if the sky split open from one end to the other to rain down fire. My whole being tensed, and I squeezed my hand around the revolver. The trigger gave. I felt the smooth underside of the butt, and there, in that noise, sharp and deafening at the same time, is where it all started. I shook off the sweat and, the, and sun. I knew that I had shattered the harmony of the day, the exceptional silence of the beach where I had been happy, then I fired four more times at the motionless body where the bullets lodged without leaving a trace. And it was like knocking four quick times on the door of unhappiness, says the man who's different, right? So the sunlight hit him in the same way it did on the day he buried his mother. That's an important line there. In this sense, we're almost led to believe that this instance is parallel to burying a loved one. That he is sealed at the end when the final four shots were like knocking four quick times on the door of unhappiness. The corpse of his life would soon be buried in prison. And why did he shoot? Why did he shoot him? Precisely because all the conditions necessary for him to shoot the Arab were in place. He had the pistol. He was alone. The Arab drew his knife. The sun was annoying. He felt angry. At least I'm assuming this from him. When he said that the sea carried up a thick fire breath, it seemed to me as if the sky split open from one end to the other to rain down fire, right? Like he felt this pulse to shoot him. He felt this like, felt the sky opening up above him. This is a very dramatic scene for him. He's describing his emotions, right? He felt like the sky opened up, like this fire rained out from the ocean, and then he shot, right? Just like how baking soda does not choose to react with vinegar, Merceau did not really choose to shoot the Arab. He, all the conditions were necessary for it, right? He was always going to shoot the Arab. Okay. So we see the tone shift here, especially with the line, I knew that I had shattered the harmony of the day, the exceptional silence of a beach where I'd been happy. Okay. Well, I also want to do a little disclaimer. I call him the Arab because that's what the book calls him. Okay. I'm not just like 
saying that he's Arab and that's I just call him the Arab. That's what the book calls him. Okay. He's in some Arab guy. Right. I knew that I had shattered the harmony of the day, the exceptional silence of a beach where I'd been happy. It is here that I think Merceau realizes that he was not 100% correct, that one choice over another did not really amount to the same thing. There was, in fact, a stark difference between one choice and another. Although all lives did amount to death and eternal oblivion, this eternity did not at all make our one finite life irrelevant. And why? Because death and eternal oblivion cannot be experienced. Right? And it is thus that such states are irrelevant to us. With the afterlife being irrelevant, this then makes our lives infinitely more important and meaningful. Merceau didn't realize this until he sees the reality of what he had done. Because uh, he was in this surreal, indifferent state for such a long time. And then he shoots that guy and he kind of brings him into this like, holy shit, like I just shot a guy, right? Uh, so the world up until that point had seemed surreal and irrelevant. But now things were different. The harmony was shattered and he could finally see the chaos of reality. But still, prior to the murder, he said that shooting or not shooting made no difference. Why? Uh, it was his life regardless, right? And what exactly was the difference between his life and another's? It's the experience, right? The experience was the only difference. It was the difference between watching Spongebob or Pulp Fiction. But nonetheless, another life was irrelevant because the only life Rousseau would ever experience was his own. So who cared? He could just as easily see both lives flashing before his eyes, but only his decision to fire would seal his fate. Right? This all reminds me of a movie called Mr. Nobody. Also reminds me of the Truman Show, but it reminds me of Mr. Nobody the most, especially that it's called Mr. Nobody, the stranger. You can see the correspondence there. Strangers are nobody. Right. Right. So, which I highly recommend you watching. The protagonist essentially imagines several different ways in which his life could play out based off of one decision. So, and he is left in a state of indifference into which life would be better to live since there are so many options. So, what life would be better to live, right? And he comes to the conclusion that, or at least it you can kind of see that that's inclusion it comes to that it doesn't matter what life we live precisely because every life has good and bad in it. And most lives have at least one good moment in them that we would do anything to experience, even experience an entire life of suffering just to get to that point. Right. So well, that's the end of it. If you're listening on Spotify or YouTube, let me know what you guys think of all this. Uh, I'll leave a question in the description for Spotify. Like, what do you think? Uh, I might post it on another poll too. I think that was good. Uh, I'll definitely try to go back to the Slaughterhouse Five. Maybe I'll try to get mine on an ep- on another episode. Haven't had him in a while. So, and in YouTube, just. Drop me a comment on YouTube. Tell me what you think. Tell me uh, what kind of recommendations you'd want, like uh, a guest recommendation or a topic recommendation. And maybe go back to the poll that I did on the on the episode with Daniel and respond to that poll. You know, you can go back and look at it. So um, I'll, I'll come back to you with part three here in a couple of weeks. 
So I still got to read that. I still got to write me notes and all that. So if you're interested in supporting the podcast at all, uh, check out the links in the description. So my girlfriend, she designed a few things. So you can buy a coffee cup. You can design or buy a sweatshirt, a t-shirt, a bottle opener, all that jazz, a bro tank. So anyhow, go check that stuff out. Um, I'm not going to give you guys ads. You know, this podcast has like 800 Spotify followers. So not not that many. Not that many. So, uh, like, I'm not going to throw you guys some ads because you guys are, like, the few people who come and listen to the podcast. You know, you want to en- enjoy an ad-free podcast. So, my only advertisement is shit that I'm personally selling, not some other random brand or whatever. So, uh, take out the merchandise. Some of it doesn't even have Into the Absurd. It just has my little logo on it. So, you know, you don't have to be like, oh, it's just a podcast. People would be like, oh, whoa, there's a little man pushing a yin-yang up a hill. What the fuck's that, right? So... Anyhow, uh, take it easy and don't be a stranger, right? (laughs) Or do. So take it easy. Peace out.